Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hi everyone and welcome to Racing Lives. My name is Aurélie, Aurélie Donzelot, and in this podcast I use motorsport as an excuse to chat to some of the most inspiring women I know. Each week brings a different guest and we discuss everything from career beginnings to what it's truly like to be involved in one of the fastest sports in the world. My guest today has built an impressive career as a journalist and a presenter across so many sports that asking her to come on this podcast focusing solely on motorsport feels like a disservice. She started early, becoming a journalist at just 15 and hasn't stopped since, with her vast experience spanning news, horse riding, Formula One of course, but also rugby, tennis, the Olympics, the Paralympics and much, much more. As I write this, I can hear her distinct Scottish tones, which I have witnessed personally, make for an outstanding tool to lure many interviewees into relaxed states, ready to get the very best answers out of them. Stories of drivers becoming emotional have made the rounds. I will let my guests explain this one later on in the show. With an outstandingly natural style when broadcasting, which always impressed me greatly, my guest makes being in front of the camera look easy. Having worked with her many times over the years, I know that she's the consummate professional and that any event, live or not, is always in good hands when she's involved. My guest today is the phenomenal Lee McKenzie. Oh, that is so lovely. I think we should stop now. If we could just stop recording now, I would be over the moon if it just goes out at that. (laughs) Done. Guys, that was two minutes of Racing Life Season (laughs) 2. Thank you for tuning in. I will see you next week. (laughs) (laughs) No, that was really kind. Oh, good, good. Okay. Well, as long as I got things right, I couldn't believe that you started at 15. But before you answer that one, I need to ask you the question with which I start every time, which is, now tell me, Lee, when and where did your racing life actually begin? My racing life began through my father, who was a journalist. And I remember I was off school sick one year. I was 11 years old and my dad got a phone call and it was basically along the lines of the journalist can't go to the Mexican Grand Prix. We need you to go. And my dad said, well, I don't know anything about F1. And this conversation was happening whilst I was like sniffling around as a kid in a bed. And I was like, go, go, it sounds good. That was the weekend I started watching motorsport, mostly because I had no idea where my dad had gone. And he went to do one. And I think he ended up doing 25 years. 
And I ended up watching mostly to see what was happening. And then I started going to Grand Prix really from about the age of 13 or 14 straight into the paddock. So I will admit that, you know, I wasn't really sitting in grandstands watching. But because my dad was always busy and working and I would get ditched and people in the paddock like Annie Bradshaw looked after me. She looked after me. I was doing my schoolwork in, you know, maybe like the Ford F1 team's motorhome. And then I had nothing else to do. So I would wash the dishes. So uh, in that team, I was like washing the dishes at like 15 and then doing my homework. And there was drivers kicking around and they sort of knew me. I then worked for Bernie Eccleston and then I wasn't allowed in the hospitality areas because that might be seen as being biased. But by that point, everybody knew me. So I really only had one one viable option as what I wanted to be when I grew up. So it was a really odd time. So really, my love of motor racing came from following my father. It's actually odd because I can't say that about anyone else, maybe a few drivers, but I knew your dad before I knew you, which is insane. I know. And that is a reputation that you don't necessarily want to follow. I mean, this is a man who everybody absolutely loves him. And, you know, he was close to Bernie and the drivers got on well with him. And he did a book on Nigel Mansell, did a book on Damon Hill. But he also has the unfortunate accolade of having run around Silverstone naked whilst body painted like a McLaren wearing only a sporran. So that story haunts me. And I actually blame Mark Webber for that because they were on Radio 5. And it was the year that McLaren were so poor and Dad said, look, they'll never win a race this year. If they do, I'd do anything. And Mark Weber, my colleague and friend, said, well, what would you do? And Dad was like, well, I'll do anything. And he went, well, would you run around Silverstone naked? And Dad went, yeah, of course. And then, sadly, Kimi won the Belgian Grand Prix about two weeks later. <laughs> so, yeah, I'd never make a bet is what I've learned. If that's the only thing I learned from my father, then um, I'll take that into the Formula One paddock. Well, what an introduction, eh? <laughs> Please do not judge me on that story. You know, you can't judge the, the child on the on the parents. That's why I always say, unless it's a good point. I'd actually forgotten that story. And all I remembered was his excellent writing and his presence in the paddock. Because he would look after me as well when I started, which is yeah. really, really nice. No, he was, he, he's, uh, I think a lot of the drivers, you know, just enjoyed chatting to him because he, like me, would go to lots of different sports events. You know, he did six Olympic Games and all the rest of it. And as I say, had written these books. So somebody like Sebastian would love chatting to him because he had, you know, known Ayrton Senna and been there through all these different times. And and the ones who really appreciate the history of motorsport would, would basically come in and chat to my dad about all these crazy times that they used to have because Formula One was very, very different, not comparable the way that the paddock and everything was run. And I'm pleased, even as a child, that I saw that, you know, it, it puts things into perspective and it shows you that it's a sport that, that never stands still. That's true, actually. Even in my time, which is a lot shorter, I've seen it change completely. I know my perspective is changing, you know, because of the different roles that I'm doing, but it has this completely changed. It's become yeah. huge. Even last year, 2020, with so many less people, you could feel that it was still a very big space that we were actually trying to yeah. fill. Yeah. And I think last year was interesting. I mean, I only did a few last year, but it was very special and it was really important, I think, both for international sport but, but also for Formula One to prove that if you put the right things in place, you can operate in a COVID safe manner. And I understand that rich sports have done very well. So golf, Formula One, you know, these are the ones that are continuing. They're also non-contact, like unlike, you know, 
football and rugby. But I think it was really important. It put Formula One in a very good place to show the effort they made and the fact that you can still run uh, a huge global sport and do it in a very safe manner. And I have to recognise the efforts, the logistical efforts that it took for Formula One and then for all the teams and everyone involved, the guys that help with our travel, the guy with helps, you know, with the, the logistics, the people, the companies. It was impressive. It really was impressive. And even the effort that the teams made behind the scenes, Renault for one and a lot of other teams were, were doing different partner events and getting the drivers involved and, and, and still doing it to a, a huge level of professionalism. And it still you know cost them money to have to do it. But, you know, they, they made it really special for the people who couldn't go to the sport that still invest in your team and, and in the different teams around the paddock. And I think that's really, really important as well, because when we have to go back to normal or as normal as we can be, and it'll be a, a different world again, Formula One needs money and it still needs to operate in the way that it used to. And you can only do that by making fans and supporters feel as special as they can. So the other side of that, is seeing my colleagues, myself, you know, having to learn and grapple with new technology and finding ways to make it work. Were you always a fan of motorsport or did it actually literally come into your life because of your dad and because of that experience? And do you reflect back on that and think that it came to find you or did you actively look at it as an opportunity and something that you wanted to do with your work? I think I was fascinated by it, really. I mean, I would go to rugby. That was an easy thing to go to. I had horses when I was little. I understood that. But I didn't really understand Formula One. And I think most people can't really, because you could always go a boy or girl into a playground and kick a ball or, you know, not everyone can get on a horse. But if you live in the countryside, the chances are you might do that. Um, you can pick up a tennis racket. But Formula One sort of fascinated me because I didn't really know what it was. And I became like, you know, really quite not obsessed with it, but you could I like the way you could follow it. You know, I like that sort of routine of it. And you started to know different people and, and different characters and faces. And then before you know it, you're getting up, at the, you know, in the middle of the night to watch the Japanese Grand Prix and see if Damon's going to win a title and things like that. And I think that's um, probably when I, I really started to get the, the bug for it all. And the fact that I could go into a path when you are able to go to something and I appreciate I was very, very lucky. Then it changed it because I knew people. I'd met these people. You know, I'd met David Coulthard, who's now like, you know, a brother to me. I think that's a really important thing as well for everyone going forward. You've got to give athletes Formula One drivers, tennis players, anyone, they've got to have an identity. You've got to have a reason to like someone or dislike someone. And that's one thing I've always tried to bring out in my interviews, because I know what it's like when I watch sport and have a reason to like someone or dislike someone. And that could be either through personal experience or just having, you know, watched them or social media has opened that up as well. Mm. But um, I think that's a really important part of sport, that identity, particularly in Formula One, which is a faceless sport. You know what? You don't see that huge moment of elation when Lewis wins his seventh title because he has a helmet on and he has a visor down and you don't really get to see any of that. So for me, I was just sort of fascinated, puzzled, curious about the whole thing. Um, mine's exactly the same. I always say my fascination with Formula One is people. It's not the technology, although it's 
I have a huge appreciation for it. And I think it serves an amazing role in the world in terms of how fast we can develop things. And, you know, I always say we're the needle point of testing everything because we get through stuff so quickly. But my hook is the people. It was getting to know everyone. It's the gossip. It's the it's the intrigue and the theories and everyone. Everyone has a story or, you know, knows what's going to happen next. Being able to sit there and encourage specific people. And actually, one of the things, again, that I feel I'm hugely privileged to do is that yes everyone knows about the drivers everyone can have an interview with the drivers in terms of you know they can witness that and they can hopefully get to know them the press does an amazing job of of doing that the media of conveying that but I have a whole team at my disposal and I love the characters in that team too and my privilege is to be able to share those stories and maybe you know once they're comfortable sort of slowly slowly bring them to the limelight let's say and um, and get them to tell their stories or show their character that's brilliant. Absolute brilliant fun. I completely agree. I mean, the, we have in the Formula One paddock Olympians sitting on a pit wall telling a driver how to drive and all this sort of thing. And I think actually the range of characters that, that come into Formula One, they tend to have a the same sort of attitude. And if they don't at the beginning, they will by the end in that you can make something happen. And I think that's a really empowering thing about Formula One. It's like, you know, you need a part flown to China overnight. Yeah, we can make that happen. You know, and it's it's that really interesting dynamic that I actually do think it's a sport that, that makes people better. And you all start to think in the same way, you know, even our production meetings that we have in, in television in Channel 4, they are probably very similar to a sort of debrief in a Formula One team because we have people like David Cothard, Mark Webber, Eddie Jordan, um, you know, we've had loads of different people coming through the doors recently, but they all operate on that sort of level and they're busy people and time is precious and we have got a finite amount of time to make something better. And, um, and that rubs off on everyone. And I think that's a really important part of Formula One. Definitely. One of the first sentences I learned about motorsport was the race is going to start when the race is going to start. It's not going to wait for you. You adapt. You get things done in time for that schedule. And that's it. You're on the train or you're not. That's it. And I love seeing you all running around with your little pieces of paper. Some of you stick it to the back of your past. There is never a moment where I'm doing an interview that I don't see someone looking at like, what is the next thing? And the number of times as well, you know, I'll speak to one of the drivers and they'll be like, thanks so much. That was really good. What's next? And I'm like, oh, you moved on fast. I thought I was special. <laughs> That's the thing though. You are special and like you still appreciate every single moment. I mean, we are standing next to them so that they can be in the moment. You know, that's half our role anyway. Yeah. I really wanted to ask you in the work that you do, I wanted to ask you two things. One is, would you say there's misconceptions about the job that you do? And I understand that it's multifaceted. And also, how do you then define success for yourself? Because again, you have so many different avenues. It's not simply just accomplishing something or or perhaps it is and then moving on. How do you self-satisfy? Yeah, that's a really interesting point because I think you get to a stage where you sort of you're not necessarily appreciating what you're doing at that given moment. There's always a next thing. And I that's something I became quite aware of around about 2016, 2017. And to sort of go to the first point, because it probably leads on to the second, when I'm a journalist, I am there asking hard questions and all the rest of it. And I like that. And I wanted to be a journalist from an early age. I knew that. I didn't particularly want to go to university, but I was 17 when I finished school anyway. So I was 
sort of basically told, go to university. I became a news journalist. I did the Lockerbie trial. I did politics, uh, general elections and all that side of it. And I'm still very interested in, in all of that. But there's an idea now, and I think a lot of it comes through the culture in which we live. I get a lot of emails from people, you know, several times a week. How can I be a TV presenter? And I'm not, I, I'm a journalist who happens to be on television. And some people think a journalist is this dirty word. And it's like, oh, journalists are like dreadful people. But you're, you're not, you have a skill set. You know, I always say, what do you want to present? If you want to be a TV presenter, what do you want to present? What's your interest? Is it gardening? Is it animals? Is it natural history? Cars? Have an interest. A lot of people don't have an interest. They just want to be on TV. If that is the way you want to go, Go on Love Island, go, you know, do a reality TV program, but you won't get the longevity that you need. And so much of it is how you conduct yourself. And that's something which has always been in my mind. And I've always, in many ways, tried to conduct myself like a driver or like a brand in that I'm only as, you know, I'll only get employed if I'm good at my job. You need to be so good that you don't give an excuse to someone to ignore you. And that's always been, you know, one of my mantras, be so good they can't ignore you. And it doesn't always work out. I mean, it sounds an arrogant thing to say, but it's just one of these things you put in your wall that you have as a screensaver. And sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't work out. But when it comes down to what I would class as success, I would say longevity, because if you're not good, you do not get hired for other things. I mean, I was offered some work yesterday and it was a program which I know would not suit me. I, I know it. I just... um in the past, I would have taken it regardless. And I was able yesterday to go, look, do you know what? Thank you so much for considering me. This wouldn't, you know, suit me. And I actually, it might lower my stock because if you're just taking work and you're not doing it to the best of your abilities, that's not great. So I also put in a lot of prep. I mean, what people see is a tiny percentage of what I do, particularly on a multi-sport event. So a Paralympics, a Commonwealth Games and Olympic Games you have to be so well prepared, so well versed that you are kind of losing four or five months of your life. When I'm at Wimbledon, which will happen again this year, I will go back every night and prep for the Olympic Games because five days, I, well, I think actually I leave Wimbledon to go to Silverstone, leave Silverstone to go to the Olympics, come back and then go back for the Paralympics. So I know this already. So I actually in January, all being well, can schedule my year ahead. I mean, obviously things will get cancelled and that's just the way of the world. But, um, you know, the, I would say the misconception is that you're just standing there with a lip gloss and a microphone if you're a TV presenter. And some people might be, I'm not saying that's not the case, but that's certainly not how I operate. And therefore success for me is still being asked to do jobs. And also for Channel 4 and BBC, very few people are actually across two channels, two free to air channels. And I, I really like the fact that I am. It's you, you present differently on each programme, but I'm still a journalist. I'll still ask questions when I do the Six Nations. I'm not the main presenter on it. I'm a journalist. And I quite like that. And it you're always learning and it doesn't matter. You go, you know, I'll go to one sport, I'll come back into Formula One and I'll see things through different eyes and I'll realise what Formula One does really well and maybe what other sports do well. But I think as long as I'm learning, as long as I'm earning, then to me, in, in many ways, that would be success. And it's difficult because I don't think a lot of people appreciate that now. They just want to be on TV. 
that's probably one side of the social media as well. One of the ideas behind doing this podcast is the amount of messages that I get saying, your job looks awesome. I want to do that. How do you do it? What did you study at school? And it's like, well, it would be a disservice to reply with just one line anyway. So why not actually do an entire podcast series so that people can enjoy it? But it's also, it is the Instagram phenomenon, which is what you see is a tiny fraction of what the reality is. And nobody starts in Formula One. That is another thing that's worth reiterating as well. You know, I did F3000, I did GP2, I did A1 Grand Prix, DTM, Champ Car. I just filled up by going to things and I went to things for free. And people would say, you know, if we go back to the start, it was easy for me. I had a father in Fleet Street and that's absolutely true. And I never hide that. I appreciate that. But that was a foot in the door. Then you need to be good. Otherwise, you are back out that door quicker than you came in. And I think that's really important. You can't just start in Formula One. You need to put in the groundwork and you need to show willing beforehand. Absolutely. You need to build a reputation of being nice to work with as well. Because again, Formula One is a highly meritocracy. You have to be good, but you also have to be liked because we don't need to work with people we don't like. We'll just find someone else. I mean, that applies to me too. If I suddenly become a diva, I'm sure I'll be out the door very quickly. I can't imagine you ever becoming a diva, but I would look forward to that day when I'm like, Aurelie, can I get an interview? Who do you think you are? No, I don't think so. People don't see that. And I think Social media has a lot to do with that. You know, if social media was around when I was starting my career, there's no way I would have this job. No way I would do this job. I've never been that person. I don't, you know, I I put on makeup when I need to put on makeup. And that's normally when I'm on television and I occasionally brush my hair and I don't really care to a certain extent what people think. And yet I do care. And if I was 16, 17, 18, I would care an awful lot more. And uh, there is such an um, image and perception around that. And I think that people who are listening to this, particularly females, need to realise that that is not it. That is a one dimensional photo. That is not a representation of who you are as a human being. You don't see a skill set. You don't see anything else apart from contoured cheekbones and, you know, like, you know, pillow face and and lips and, you know, big hair. And that is not going to get you a job. You might look good, but it's not going to keep you in a job when you're 35 years old and you don't look like that. So it's a really interesting dynamic. And I don't think that we understand it because it's not been around long enough for us to get to that sort of 10, 15, well, 15 year period. So ultimately what I would say to people, and, and you're saying it as well, is just be kind, be good, and don't expect to have anything given to you on a plate. Talking about the other side of your role, which is very much the journalistic thing, one of the things I've noticed, which I love about you, is that you're able to ask actually quite tough questions and kind of go to the heart of the subject. And the person being interviewed will probably still have a smile on their face (laughs) and and won't retract. They won't sort of go in their shell. They'll actually almost be like, no, this is a good way of asking it. And I like the challenge and I want to rise to it. I always say my sister's a solicitor at the moment. She has that inability. It's just in her. Is that something that you grew up with? Is it something that you cultivated? I think I always decided that to disarm someone in many ways is to do it with a smile and be friendly. Now, I didn't want to go into Formula One to be friends with drivers, but naturally you become friendly or friends because it's different um, with drivers. I will never shirk from having to ask them a question. And it's made for some interesting interviews. And if there's been a problem, I'll speak to them afterwards. 
And it's fine because in that moment, there is a level of respect. But the other thing is, I and I think um, some people are lazy or just don't maybe quite understand the best way or they don't know the drivers. I mean, let's not forget, I've known these drivers, a lot of them, before they got to Formula One. So you do start to know them differently. I would ask the same question to just about every driver differently because you would know how they reacted or you would have done a little bit of research or maybe watched especially if it's a one-to-one interview, you take the time to look at other interviews they've done on YouTube or things like that. You know how they react, you know what pushes the buttons and how to gauge a reaction, how to prompt a reaction and also how not to upset or annoy someone because it's a long old year. If I've annoyed somebody, you know, to a huge extent at the Australian Grand Prix, Abu Dhabi seems an awful long way off. You know, you've got like 20 weeks of hell in front of you. So I would always make sure I would ask, I could ask the same question to every driver, but I would do it differently to try and get that response that they would um, react to best. Do you think there's an element of psychology that goes into this? Well, sometimes you don't have time for it. I mean, if it's a reaction and someone's crashed out on, on lap one or two, you know, there's very little you can say. But yes, I do think there is. And and again, I think a lot of that is knowing, you know, how to interview Lewis to how to interview Valtteri is very different. Now, a lot of that is because where they're starting. And I've been doing quite a lot of writing recently and thinking back to before I, you know, Lewis got to F1, I knew him. We sometimes shared a hire car occasionally in, in GP2. And I actually used to say this to, I, I did an interview with him in the summer and we talked about this. And, you know, let's not forget, he went through really desperate times in Formula One there was a few years where he was like tweeting his telemetry when he was at McLaren and like upsetting everyone and all the rest of it and and now he's found himself but you've got to know who you're dealing with at that time and there is psychology involved and you've got to know how someone's going to react these guys are not machines they can be a bit arrogant and cocky when they're winning but very few people are winning just now. So it's how to manage that sort of other expectation. No driver gets into Formula One hoping to be 12th on the grid. But sometimes that is just the reality of it. And you can't patronise them. But you've got to understand that, you know, they know the team and the car better than anyone. So they know their limits better than anyone. But at the same time, that's not what they're there for. And that was a really interesting thing with, for example, Sebastian over the last couple of years. The interviews were, were horrible because you were asking questions that you should never be asking to a four-time world champion. It will be, you know, we had it with Fernando as well before mm-hmm. he had his sabbatical. You know, they, these are not comfortable interviews to do, but I think the guys know that. And, and you know, I've been around almost as long as them. So they, they know. I think they, they have to trust you as well because you get a very different interview when there's trust back. You can absolutely see it. And I think you, you're you probably allowed a lot more because you know them, because they trust you. There's um, a physical behaviour that you see depending on who the, the interviewee yeah. and the, Yeah, it's funny. It must be really interesting for you to see it from that side, because sometimes, you know, we're all flustered. We've got back to back interviews. We quickly sit down and we do these interviews and all the rest of it. And you don't really see it from the other side. But I love doing the one to one interviews, the ones that you can plan, you can research, you can sit down, you can get into the sort of someone's psyche. You touched on it earlier, but I really wanted to dig into it a little bit more, which is the work-life balance. Again, because motorsport's one thing, it's very it's very encompassing because of the travel or because of the intensity of it. But you're also combining that with rugby, uh, equestrian, <laughs> Olympics, tennis. Yeah. How, how do you manage your work-life balance? How do you do it? 
Yeah, it is tricky. And I'm better now, which is why, you know, I, I said a couple of years ago that I was going to stop F1. And that didn't really happen. I still sort of keep popping up, which I didn't ever want to stop F1. But, you know, everyone could see that the situation was changing and Sky were going to be doing the interviews at the pen. And I didn't really want to just go to be seen. I love presenting all the other stuff. So I thought maybe that was a good time to stop. But I actually think that sort of five, six, seven, eight races that I'm doing, I really love doing them. 2016 is when Channel 4 came into the mix. Now, I love being part of the BBC. I think, you know, the BBC is the BBC. They do quality programmes. And I was sort of surprised and shocked and didn't really know what to do. So when Channel 4 came in, I said, Look, I'm never, I'm not going to join Channel 4. I'd rather stay at the BBC because what sport did Channel 4 do at that time? I was like, you know, I didn't know what my job would be. Anyway, that didn't work out very well because obviously then I just straight away ended up going to Channel 4. But I didn't lose my BBC work and that was really important to me. 2016 and 2017 were just unbelievable years and... I did the Olympics in 2016 and I think I did 18 Grand Prix in 2016 and I did the Paralympics I just and Wimbledon and Six Nations and I was a bit all over the shop. And then 2017 came and I was like, I can't do that again. But then because 2016 had been a good year for me work-wise, 2017 became even more hectic and I did... I had this summer in 2017 when I think back to it. I didn't even do the British Grand Prix, which was bizarre. But Channel 4 wanted me to present other programmes and I did Wimbledon. I think I left Wimbledon in the middle Saturday to go some to do another Grand Prix. I didn't even do the Wimbledon finals. And I remember walking across the park at the Olympic Park in East London, listening to the Grand Prix on my phone. Everyone's tires were exploding. And I was trying to listen, also listen to the, Wim, the men's final. So I was like not part of two things. And I was going to present the World Para Athletics for 10 nights on Channel 4 and I was really excited about that and it was a great program and a wonderful event but also during that I was uh, co-presenting with Claire Balding the Women's European Football Championships which were held in Belgium and the Netherlands so I was literally finishing one show at 10pm having to go back and prep getting in a plane the next morning flying to a different country presenting a football match coming back and doing a different program I just remember standing on the balcony and the TV compound at the Singapore Grand Prix, just in tears, phoning my agent at the time, saying, this has got to stop. And it was a stupid conversation to have because I was the only one accepting this work. So I'm shouting at some poor woman sitting in an office in London. And I just didn't know how to manage myself. It's not something that you learn until it tips over to the other side and that's when I'm, I made my decision that something has got to give now even at that time Channel 4 didn't have the rugby so that then came along but rugby I, you know I've done for years and years and I absolutely love it but it's uh it's interesting because in many ways 2020 came and, and sort of threw down an anchor for us all anyway so now we will see what happens going forward but this summer is busy for me so I might have learned a lesson but maybe not there's always going to be 10 or 11 manic weeks once every four years or so that's just the way of it and you have to cope with it and you have to deal with it but you must have everything else in place round about you and you learn how to manage yourself you know I used to go to Siaki Hintza who looked after a lot of the drivers in Formula One because you know I don't sleep on planes I don't particularly sleep anywhere but you know I needed to learn how to look after myself and put the the, the building blocks and the or the foundations in place that I was when I went to an event you know or back-to-back -back events for 10 weeks I was the best version of myself that I could be and of course you're not of course you're not going to be the best version because you're absolutely spent 
but you just need to last 12 weeks and then <laughs> see what happens after that. How do you manage your friends and family's expectations? I've missed a lot of friends' weddings because also at the time, you know, I was maybe, say it was around 2009, 2010, 2011. I wasn't really comfortable enough to take weekends off, like big weekends off like that. I wasn't allowed. That's the other thing that people don't sort of understand, I think, that I'm contracted for 18 weekends of the year, whatever it is. The least I can do is turn up. You know, <laughs> It's not a full-time job. I'm not five days a week in an office, you know, for sort of 50 weeks of the year with holidays. I'm self-employed. I basically just need to turn up, you know, Thursday to Sunday, 18 times a year at that stage. And so I couldn't then be saying, oh, by the way, I've got a wedding to go to or things like that. Um, I took the Sunday off in Hungary for my grandma's 100th birthday. And I remember having a conversation again with Sebastian about this. And he was like, you need to make sure you're not working. Take that day off. And that's the right thing to do. And it felt really weird on the Saturday night flying back, but it was absolutely the right thing to do. And I think drivers, you know, they miss out as well, but they have a very different role to us. Whereas now I can, you know, my friend was meant to get married this year, which has been postponed anyway, but her fiance is a pro golfer and they tour the world. So that when I got that save the date, my heart was like, in my mouth I was like oh god can I save the day it's a busy year it's a busy year and it happened that I could but yes it's an odd way to think and I don't think people appreciate it and then the flip side comes that you are off but nobody invites you to anything because they presume that you're busy you have to broadcast it you have to be like I'm here I'm here what can we do and then actually oh you know it could be that that's the oh you know we're just chilling out this weekend we've had a really busy month and you're like oh yeah I know, all dressed up with nowhere to go. Yep. (laughs) I'd like to ask you, what's your proudest moment in your career so far? Mm, That's an interesting one. There's a few random things in that I was, I won the Jim Clark Award and that's voted for by journalists. So you're basically voted for by your peers. And that meant a lot because, you know, I think that was pretty special. I was the first female to win it at the time as well. And a lot of it was either car designers or, you know, racing drivers and people like that. So that actually was really special. I look back fondly on my foray into co-driving in the uh, in, in rallying that was great fun because I think I was expected just to be useless at it and I'm not saying I could make a career out of it but I was proud that I achieved that you know I've been someone who's quite good at lots of things and you know and I'm appreciative to my mum who like you know gave me horse riding lessons and ice skating lessons and tennis lessons so I can go to most things and have a go you know, but I've never been very good at anything. So when the co-driving thing came along, I was really pleased that I managed that just personally. You know, I think I'm not someone who sort of sets myself out to do that sort of thing. So it doesn't have to be something in work. It can just be something that you look back on and it gives you a smile. And that certainly really gave me a smile. And then there's other things that are like, they're not necessarily what I'm proud of, but just, you know, having the relationship with with drivers and, and I think having a certain level of respect, not from everyone, don't get me wrong, but um, a, a level of respect within the Formula One paddock is, I mean, that's important because, you know, do you want to be slamming out interviews all the time or do you want people to have a sort of, be able to have a fun conversation and everything and, and make friends? And I think that's a really important thing as well. You know, work is great, but, you know, making friends with people is a real bonus on top of that. And it doesn't always happen, but when it does, it feels really special. And just to give you know, fair dues, let's say, or to keep it fair, do you have a moment where you probably identify it as one of your lowest points? And then how did you come back from it? 
Yes and no. I mean, there was a couple of things. I asked a really stupid question at Wimbledon a couple of years ago. I'd been told a piece of information in my ear and I didn't check it. I just blurted it out. That makes you, you go home feeling bad. You know, you go home feeling bad. And and that sounds like a trivial thing, but we are talking about something which is watched by 7 million people. So you, 7 million people think you're an idiot. No one thinks you're a bigger idiot than you do yourself at that moment. You can go on social media. Sometimes you flick on your social media and are you looking for a compliment? Maybe you are, but 10,000 people can write something nice and one person says something horrible and that's not good. And I need to be stronger in my own mind at that sort of thing. I mean, I'm fortunate. And you normally look at these people and you just think, well, I'm not really sort of, you know, gauging your opinion anyway, but um, it shouldn't be that way. And it shouldn't be that way for any of us, male or female. It's not a female thing. I, I would say that's a low. And then also there's just the inherent dangers that come with cars, that come with super bikes. You know, I have been there on days where drivers and riders haven't come back and um, it's a personal low, but, but it's a very different thing. It transcends sport. It transcends how I'm feeling. Nobody goes to their work to not come back. And I think when that happens, it just uh, it throws you and it never leaves you. That's something that you never, ever get used to. Having to deal with it in whatever capacity we're involved in never gets easier and actually one of the things we've talked about how fast paced it is and how quick we do everything but it's one of the things that I wish we were better at which is to really celebrate the highs because like you say the lows follow you they're harder to shake off and the highs for some reason just pass you by and we're just busy on to the next thing that's definitely one of the things I want to work on but I think last year, actually, and even though I wasn't there looking in on it, you could see when you get different race winners coming up and different people on podiums, I think there was an appreciation for everyone up and down the paddock that this was special because I remember when Mark Webber won his first Grand Prix or even going back to when Jensen won his first Grand Prix. These are the days you see things on camera like, um, you know, nobody up and down the paddock would deny him this victory. Well, it makes it sound like, you know, we're all denying everybody else a victory but in actual fact last year I think that just the way the world was and and maybe the way Formula One was and people losing their drives that maybe shouldn't be losing their drives or people coming in and you know it just felt different it felt that these things were all appreciated an awful lot more I, I thought that was really special that's really nice. You're right. I think everyone was so happy that we were able to race that when we were getting a genuinely exciting Grand Prix with an amazing result, an amazing podium. It doesn't even have to be number one. It would be two or three. Everyone got together. And also because yeah. I think because there was no one else, this person's about to win their first Grand Prix and there's no public, you know, there's nobody there. Yeah. We have to be that public. Of course we do. You kind of almost feel like that's your responsibility. Yes, I confirm, even from the inside, <laughs> there was a genuine happiness. But even, you know, Sergio getting that run towards the end when he didn't know what was happening with his career. Nico Hulkenberg sprinting in last minute and just it seemed at the beginning like all the time, just like waiting for his opportunity. People were celebrating these. It was like a little win. Like Nico being back in the paddock was a little victory for people. And I think that that was really nice. It was um, such an unpredictable time that sort of, as you say, everything had to be celebrated that we could. One of the key words that stand out to me all the time that you mentioned earlier is learning. And it's one of my favorite things. I actually think I'm motivated by continuous learning. I think if I was to ever look at a year or a season and I hadn't learned something, I would probably struggle to sign up for another. So I wanted to ask you how you feel about it. 
Yeah, I completely agree. And I think it's, you know, again, it's it's whether you're a person who kind of looks for the positives and tries to want to better yourself or not. And I'm not just talking about our work. You know, I mentioned um, the fact that I'm basically a sort of full time insomniac or vampire or whatever. And I, I read this book, you know, How We Sleep, which was reasonably traumatic at the time because it realizes how bad it is for your body, but at the same time. So I'm trying to do it, whether it be through books, to better myself, my eating habits, you know, all the rest of it. And there are a lot of positive things on social media, and you can find all that kind of stuff as well. But it can be anything about yourself, which then makes you better in the workplace and, um, and all the rest of it. And I think that's one thing I suppose I'm proud of last year, how I adapted because all of a sudden you know I couldn't go to Grand Prix because there was like we were allowed one camera one presenter one pundit as anyone who watched Channel 4 could see and you know all of a sudden after all these years there's not there's kind of not a place for you there but I did probably about 40 programs uh, from my home uh, whether it be on BBC W Series Esports League rugby programs I can't even think. And it was great. And when you total up the people who watched it, we were talking millions and millions of people. But you have to adapt and you have to be able to adapt. And and maybe that's the thing, because I've done some PR, because I've um, been a written journalist and a you know, TV journalist and a presenter, because I'm reasonably multifaceted, it doesn't maybe scare me as much as somebody who has only ever done one thing. And I think we're also all learning to use things differently, as as you mentioned, just to try and, you know, get another string to our bow, because ultimately we've got to keep our minds active. If you do the same thing every day, that's not particularly healthy. So if you can change things up a little, then I think that's really important. And I think as well, you can always learn. Sometimes you can learn something in a conversation if you could name one thing about motorsport that you genuinely love, it's the thing that stands out for you. Would you be able to? For some reason, I was on the grid in Monza a few years ago. It was during this time of constant busyness and I was trying to work out whether I wanted to continue to do Formula One all the time or not, because at that stage, I didn't think it would, there'd be an allowance for me to do you know, a certain number. It was all or nothing. And I remember standing on the grid at Monza when the engines fired up. The crowd were going berserk and I just looked round, and, you know, there's the flyover and the anthem. And I thought there and then you need to remember this. You need to remember this moment. And I actually remember it from we're going way, way back. But as a kid, it probably would have been V12s standing at the back of a garage and like, you know, my eardrums nearly perforating. And I just remember at the time thinking you need to remember this and it's these special moments you're just there it's a private moment in your head you could be surrounded by thousands of people but in that moment there's an absolute stillness and an appreciation of where you are and how special it is to be there and you know it doesn't I don't really care you know if I'm running around on a grid at Monaco interviewing celebrities that's fine but that's not my purpose that's not why I'm there I also love standing, watching. There are certain tracks, as you'll know, not many, but you can actually watch the race. It's very unusual for me to be out on track watching a race. And as a car comes past or, you know, as a helmet flashes past, and particularly I stand down at Rascas at Monaco and you can see them. And I'm a bit like, I wonder what's going through Esteban's head just now. I wonder what Seb's feeling. I wonder how Fernando's feeling or Lewis is feeling at that moment, because they're focused, they're 100% focused, but you you sort of see it through different eyes. 
One other aspect of motorsport that I'd like to cover with you, if that's all right, is stress. Because we acknowledge mm. what the drivers go through. We know it's a stressful environment, although they're very good at coping with it. I'm actually always amazed at how calm they are whilst we're running around <laughs> in various situations. But do you experience stress when you're working and how do you cope with it? I experience it less so in Formula One. And I think it's because I've been around that the longest. What I like about Formula One is I will know the trainer. I'll know the you know, the chances are I'll know, know some of the guys working on the car. Uh, I'll know some of the guys and girls on the pit wall. Uh, you know, you lot. So there's very few people in Formula One that wouldn't walk past and go, hey, Lee, which I don't necessarily have in other sports. And familiarity is is a wonderful thing to have because I will always go off and ask a question uh, if I want to learn something. You know, I'm not I never pretend I'm a, a mechanic. I know the workings of the car. So it's always worth asking that question. And I can do. And that ability to do that relieves my stress, which I don't always have in in other sports. I love a race start. I get quite stressed for a race start. But that's for a different reason. You know, that's just because I I get excited. And there will be moments where, you know, when I was at the pen and you'd have like, you know, 20 cars finished a race, you literally it would be like a hit and run. And people would sort of naturally migrate over, you know, to me. Sometimes they were queuing and I would be thinking, what on earth is going on here? And if it was two people that had crashed into each other, that's when I think I probably get most most stressed. If there's been some controversy, how best to deal with that? Because you are going to ask a question which is going to annoy someone, upset someone, put somebody on the spot. I had to do it at Silverstone this year. A lot of drivers had been quite critical of Roman and I had to ask him about it. And I just saw when I asked the question and I did say, you know, a lot of other drivers, because I would never ask a question like that from my point of view, because I'm not a driver. Why would I know? But a few people had been on team radio. And when I asked the question, I hated myself. His shoulders slumped and I just thought, "Mm." But yeah, I had to do it. And I was a bit stressed in the build up because I knew I was going to have to get to that point. I always think if you try and start with a good question, have a hard question. And if you can finish with a positive question. But I think, you know, that's when I would get most stressed when you have to have um, some sort of controversy that you have to deal with, whether you want to deal with it or not. You've got to ask that question and things like, you know, there was there was about four years of my life. And in the end, I would joke about it. I'd say something like. Uh, well, Felipe, this is to Felipe Massa, you know, we're just started the European season. We're at Barcelona, which can only mean one thing. Uh, you'll obviously be uh, fighting for your seat this year. And he would laugh because, you know, that was the only way around it. Every year he was about to like leave Formula One and he was hanging on with the skin of his teeth. And like, you know, it was there was always a rumour, always a rumour. And it always happens with Ferrari because it's, it's always such an unsettled thing. In many ways, it was good that we didn't have to deal with that because uh, the Seb situation was dealt with during lockdown this year. So, you know, you could you didn't have to ask these awkward questions all the time because that's the thing I think, um, now that I've had a chance to speak about it for about four minutes, that <laughs> sort of stands out for me that w- these people are, you know, people are in danger of losing their jobs. Alex Albon, the perfect example of that. The interviews I had to do with him last year, I hated every second of it. You know, not because he's not a lovely person, because of the opposite. He is a lovely person who was fighting to keep his dream job, his dream seat. And someone like me turns up and asks these questions. And also, you're not the only person asking them. He's probably gone through seven interviews within that half hour. I know. It's tough. It is tough. Uh, It is tough. It's tough. I mentioned in the introduction that you've made drivers cry, apparently. I'm hoping it's... I'm I love it. it's in laughter rather than having to ask that particular question. But 
I think there were four who cried at the Brazilian Grand Prix in, I don't know what year it was, maybe 2013. It just seemed to be a very emotional time. Not for me. Ted Kravitz was in the background just wetting himself laughing, calling me the Dark Destroyer um, because of like my raven hair pulled back, like, you know, drivers crying left, right and centre. And uh, Felipe cried because he was leaving Ferrari. But Felipe used to cry quite a lot. So that was... You know, you kind of standard. Seb cried, I think, because he won the championship. So we're talking in that case, 2012, uh, maybe 2013, 2012. And then um, Lewis was crying because he was leaving McLaren for Mercedes. And then I was walking down the paddock and Fernando had lost the championship by like one point or something. And the next thing you see someone coming towards you and you've just interviewed him and you've been with him throughout this entire story. And, and Fernando's not the, I wouldn't say I was friend, I'm friendly, as in like, we will always chat to each other, but you're not friends. He just walked up to me and I just sort of like did a nervous smile, <laughs> like you can't, like, sorry, nervous smile. And he just like put his arm around me and he was like sobbing. And I'm thinking at this point, I've now had four drivers crying, which I think is probably a record for anyone. And I just didn't really know what to do. I sort of <laughs> left Brazil thinking, I feel like I don't know if I'm a counsellor or just a horrible person or a really bad interviewer, but I think four drivers is probably the limit. And I will be honest about this. There are questions you can ask that you know will gauge a reaction in that situation. So, you know, Felipe Ferrari's been your family. You've been through an awful lot together. You know, he obviously had the head injury. You can you can ask these interviews. He, he was always going to cry. It was a very odd year, but I think again, it comes down to trust, I suppose. I think so. I think you foster that environment. Which again, let's clarify: when we're talking about these kind of interviews, even if it's a one to one, we're talking about minutes. I mean, I'm not saying that um, we should be proud that you're making people cry. Obviously, no. you're not making people cry. It's just the moment. No, I'm not. <laughs> but it was just that bizarre. That um, that that was incredibly strange. That I just remember that pen, like you know, everyone just like in floods of tears, walking around. I was thinking, what on earth is going on? We're coming up to the last couple of questions and I very much wanted to centre it back on our audience who are probably listening either because they like you and want to find out all about you. <laughs> I think we've covered that bit. but um, or, or they're actually hoping to work in motorsport one day and are after some advice. So I wanted to ask you two things. I wanted to ask you if you've ever received a specific piece of advice that you've carried through your career and um, what would that be? And then obviously for anyone that's looking to follow in your footsteps, uh, what would be your advice? I was fortunate as well going into not just motorsport but journalism and I would I was always told to not be biased you know I can I'm a huge Formula One fan but when I'm in a Formula One paddock I'm not a crazed fan I will ask the question that needs to be asked it doesn't matter if I'm asking a question to a friend it's exactly the same in rugby you know you have to be able to distance yourself and basically a good journalist should be a good journalist, whether they are sitting in a courtroom doing court stories, as you know, which is how most people start off, um, doing the Lockerbie trial, a hugely emotive subject and something I remember happening when I was at school. And, um, you know, I had to be able to distance myself from that and the people who died and all the rest of it, even though I remember it clearly as a, as a child and it happening very close to where I'm from. And I think that's just, it doesn't matter what you're doing. You should be a good journalist. Uh, the principles are exactly the same, whether it's news or sport. And and I would always adhere to that. And that's one thing I think I'm sort of most proud of, that 
you should conduct yourself in that way. And sometimes it makes you a little bit colder in these moments. And sometimes you might be a bit, you might come across as being a bit more harsh, but that's just how I deal with it. And then the other one I would say to people is just be as good as you can be, because even if it's not enough, you've done your best. And I think especially now with the focus on, and I, I did a big piece about this on Channel 4 in the summer, gender equality, ethnicity, everything about that, you know, you might get different routes in and that has to be open to absolutely everyone. Those opportunities must be open to everyone. But ultimately, everybody has a responsibility to be good. I do not wake up in the morning hoping to be the best female to ask a question that day. I want to be the best person to ask a question that day. Sometimes it'll happen. Other times it won't happen. But I I would never limit my possibilities just because I'm I'm a female and I want to have this sort of uh, be be the best or be a quota. I just want to be as good as I can be. And I think that that is ultimately what I would say to people. You know, don't limit your possibilities. Just try and be as good as you can. I have to agree. I think if anyone has ever looked in my direction and had any sample of a box that they wanted to put me in, I can firmly say that I have never, ever considered myself likely to be in a box or limited by anything. My only limits are what I make of the opportunities that come my way and how good I can possibly be. And sometimes I know I'm not my best either. You know, (laughs) sometimes I'm tired and I might phone in. But yeah, wise advice, definitely. If you can't see it, you can't be it. So make it visible, make it acceptable. And then put it out to everyone and then the best will get to the top regardless of anything. Thanks, Lee. I've got just one more question. What are you looking forward to? Oh, my goodness. Well, it's a funny one, I think, just now in 2021. There's a, there's almost an association of guilt of looking forward to things. I'm, I'm looking forward to a vaccine. I'm looking forward to um, Formula One starting back up olympics happening this year if it does because i'll be heading out to japan paralympics you know if i look at um, my work from that point of view that sort of makes me think of normality and um you know i have never spent as much time with my family and, and friends even be it virtually or like limited walks far apart from each other one at a time over the last year or so and that's been hugely positive that has been really healthy for me but as we touched upon it's not necessarily normal so I would like to just have a feeling of possibility and positivity and um, that will come hopefully through everybody being able to just have a bit more freedom and you know meeting a friend or going to work and not having to have that extra layer of worry Because I think the collateral damage that will come from COVID um, won't necessarily just be the the dreadful deaths and things that we hear about every day. But, you know, it's people not being able to go to university. It's people not being given the opportunities again that they should be given. And I think that, honestly, if I'm looking forward to anything, it's looking forward to that. Thank you very much, Lee. That's it. That's all I've got. Oh, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. I'm so pleased I haven't had to ask a single question. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe via your favourite podcast platform. Leave a review if you can, tell your friends, post about it on social media. It all means so much and it really helps new people find our little podcast. I read every message and every mention, as you know, and it means a huge deal. 
You can also get in touch directly if you'd like via my Instagram account, which is Pandia, P-A-N-D-E-A. And there's now a link in the show notes via which you can support the podcast directly should you wish to. It takes an awful lot of coffee to make this show, as you can imagine. Thank you very much for listening and speak to you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.